0: Hello, I'm Hugh Ronzani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Each episode, you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world, its characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens. The Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the many traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and perform. We pay our respects to elders past, present and to our shared future. Today I'm joined again by Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music, to dive for a second time into Bach's universe. Ahead of violinist Jonas Czendaline's much-awaited live debut, we're going to talk about Bach's life story, how it all began, his education, and how some of the Brandenburg musicians work with manuscripts to bring this music to you. So, wherever you are, sit back, relax, and join Alan and I for this Tales of Baroque. Hello Alan, thank you for joining me today, and may I just say how privileged I feel to be getting a second chance to dive into Johann Sebastian Bach's musical universe with you.
1: Isn't that uh, just a great thing to be able to do um, Bach really twice in one year? But uh, luckily we're never likely to run out of things to talk about in relation to Bach because he's such an interesting character as well as uh, so much wonderful music. And indeed, following two cancellations already,
0: young violinist Jonas Chandelin is finally going to be able to make his live concert debut in Australia, and Paul Dyer's personal tribute to Bach will come to fruition.
1: Yay! <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that's really um, been put off off so much by COVID over all of this time. It's wonderful to see this finally coming off.
0: So let's refresh our ears and hear Jonas Chenderlein performing with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra in the digital premiere of Bach's Universe. This is the opening allegro from the violin concerto in E major. Uh, having seen Jonas and heard him performing with Brandenburg in the digital premiere of Bach's Universe, Alan, what do you make of Jonas and his approach to the music? Uh, What were your first impressions?
1: It's fascinating to uh, listen to and to watch on video as well a player who is so immersed in the style and has been really all his career. And one of the things that really stands out to me is that uh, he plays like a man who has always played the rock violin as his first instrument, which I believe is the case, right?
0: Yes, that's right. Well, he he started learning violin as a five-year-old, but then at 11, such an such an experienced old age, uh, started on Baroque violin. And um, it comes to him as if it's second nature. It really is something that I, that I was astonished by myself as well.
1: Yeah, and that is uh, an unusual thing of course today where most um, players will come to playing a baroque instrument as their second instrument in a way. they trained on the modern instrument first because that's just how the system works, that's how the schools are set up and all of that uh, and then you discover the historical instrument as uh, a new and exciting thing and add that to an existing set of skills on the modern instrument. Um, so uh, it's a different approach and it means that you're kind of modifying something which is already established, I guess, as a kind of technical and musical foundation from uh, in the modern style of playing with the modern instrument and then almost relearning how to do it on the historical instrument. Whereas for somebody like him who's been playing it all his life, you can really see and and I think here, uh, the as you say, the kind of naturalness with which he plays. And uh, I see that in, in his technique on the instrument just to, you can see even on the video and it'll be fascinating to see him live that for example his uh, bowing arm um, is in the sort of position that's described by Leopold Mozart the father of, of Wolfgang Mozart who wrote the famous book on how to play the violin in the mid 17th in the mid 18th century in these the 1750s And uh, he describes how you're supposed to hold your bowing arm with your elbow quite low. Uh, In fact, there's one of the the violin treatises uh, says that you should um, tie a string from your elbow to a button on your coat to remind you not to lift your elbow up too high. Well, that's really the opposite of modern violin bowing technique where your elbow is expected to be up high uh, and so you can see that he is really kind of thoroughly inside the way of playing the instrument and I also hear it in just the the details of uh, of the way you play a piece like the um the violin concerto that we're going to hear which uh, starts out with a bom bom bomb Ba dum, ba da dum, pom pom ba dum, and when, then we get da 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 And most of the recordings that you listen to, they play all of those semiquavers pretty much the same. Da 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 da. And it's kind of boring. Like, why does he write all of those notes the same? You know, what he could have just written one long note, and it would be the much the same effect. But for somebody who's immersed in the style, as of course all the players of the orchestra are as well. You, you understand that they're not all the same you know and you, and you can play ba da da or da 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 there are all sorts of possible different variations that you can do which make the music come to life and it sounds completely different uh played by an expert like you and us and, and like the the musicians of the orchestra who'll be accompanying him that it does just you know, played by anybody who is not immersed in it in the same way.
0: Indeed. And I'll never forget in the series we saw not long ago this year, The Barks, with Herr Shunske Sato from the Netherlands Barks Society um, directing the orchestra. In rehearsal, when Shunske was approaching uh, Syriacus Wilke's work, the only non Barkian, if you will, in <laughs> on the program. Uh, he was talking about C major and in the Battaglia that is the only surviving work we have from Syriacus Vilka, th- the notion that C major could be, bone shattering and and death defying and some sort of uh cruel message to the uh opposing forces on the other side of the battlefield and and that's how they should imagine it and and you know and then it came across in performance the way that they could vary the chords that were often repeated notes you know there wasn't much on the score in terms of what was what was going on but indeed if you get into the detail and that sort of performance experience that knowledge about how that how you can open up these ideas then then uh, you can make something of those repeated notes that really is exceptional.
1: That's right, and that's why it's a wonderful thing to have uh, guest artists like Shunskosato as well, who's such an eminent Baroque violinist, to to come in and bring uh, their particular perspective on how all of this works, and I think it it helps to to keep the performances uh, lively and interesting and always uh, kind of fresh in the the approach that the orchestra takes.
0: Now, we'll get back to Jonas and the violin concerto in E major in just a little bit. Um, Last time we spoke about many things, Alan, and notably we, we really talked about who Bach is, who Bach is to us now, in, in, and how his music is received today. And judging from some of the feedback I had after that episode, you really moved many of our listeners with that incredible rendition in Arabic of Eb Amadich, mein Gott, from St. Matthew Passion that uh, featured the group Sarband Band and uh, singer Fadia El Hajj. Now, perhaps this time around, and with the benefit of having seen Jonas already on Brandenburg 1, we could go back to the start of Johann Sebastian's life and place him once again in the context of his very musical family. And uh, what do we know of his early life? What do we know of his musical education to start off with?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating one because we know that he grew up in a very musical family. His father was a professional musician. He was a a town musician. uh, So that meant that he played multiple instruments and uh, played in the church and for civic events and so on. Uh, On the other hand, we know very little at all about the detail of Johann Sebastian's actual musical training. So most of it we really have to kind of surmise from the circumstances. Um, so we can be assured that he would have started off with some kind of keyboard lessons and quite possibly violin lessons from his father or from other members of the family and, and colleagues uh, who were around. But he had a very tough start in life because when he was nine, um, his, uh, his mother had died and, and then his father remarried only six months later to a lady who had already been widowed twice and uh, so she had two little daughters of her own so we have a blended family okay hopefully things are going to settle down here but no three months after they're married Bach's father Ambrosius Bach died as well so this poor lady is left with uh, a whole family of his children that she's responsible for plus two of her own little daughters no visible means of support And uh, so she had to apply to the town for some kind of a pension, but she got only what she was owed because of her husband's uh, prior service, and she simply couldn't look after all of these kids. So Johann Sebastian and his older brother Jacob were sent off to live with their oldest brother who had uh, luckily just uh, left school and so forth and, and had got married and settled into a job as a church organist, but he was only 22. And so here he is, freshly married, starting a new job as an organist, and he has two younger brothers who suddenly have to come and live with him and that he's supposed to look after and pay for their upkeep and so on on a very small salary. So all of this is really challenging kind of circumstances. And yet through it all, Johann Sebastian seems to have um, found his own path to, to learning. So he um, he learned from his brother, we can be pretty sure, uh, particularly on the keyboard. Uh, he famously accessed his brother's collection of uh, musical scores. There's the famous story of how he sat up late at night copying them out, which he wasn't supposed to do and got in big trouble for, for doing that. Um, it's not because they were in some way uh, secret or forbidden to him because he wasn't supposed to learn that music or anything like that. Probably the reason was that musicians circulated music between themselves in kind of closed networks. And so if his older brother had got some of this music on the understanding that it was to go no further, that it was kind of confidential and to be shared only with the people who were in the network, then the idea that his little brother at the age of nine is sitting there late at night making illegal copies of, or at least unauthorised copies of all of this music might have been a bit of a shock. So anyway, he's he's, uh, doing everything he can to get hold of unfamiliar music and to learn how to play it, but also the act of copying it out is a crucial element in his development because at this time, if you wanted to get to understand a piece, one of the ways of understanding the compositional process was to physically copy it out on a new piece of paper. The act of doing that, of writing down all of the notes again, makes you kind of get into the the mindset of the person who wrote the piece in the first place and understand how it works. Every time you're writing down a sequence of notes, you know, why is that C sharp there? Why is it not a C natural? Oh, I see, it's because he's heading in this direction, he's gonna modulate towards D or, oh, and why is he doing that there and not, you know, four bars earlier and, and so on. So you can see his little mind is ticking over and he's a very smart, guy right he did very well at school um rose up through the ranks despite having to miss a lot of school when he was ill and his when his parents died and, and all of this uh he um he just stuck at it basically so he he would when, uh, when he went to live with his brother in Ordorf, he went to a very good local school luckily for him and probably for them Uh, but eventually his brother wasn't able to keep him uh, as well and so he and another boy at the age of uh, uh, 14 um, went off to boarding school in Luneburg, up in the north of Germany quite a long way away so he's just sent off out into the world really at the age of 14. Now how can he do that? How can he go to a rather good boarding school in another city at that time, well, it's because they had scholarships for talented musicians, a bit like some of the private schools do today. Uh, In order to uh, cover their expenses, they sang in the, the church choir played in the orchestra and were available to make music uh, also for private citizens who would pay a fee to the school to have a band of musicians come. For example, if it was your birthday and you were a wealthy merchant, well, you might get... The musicians from the school to come and sort of play you a serenade in the street outside the house or as a surprise for your you know your wife's uh (laughs) anniversary or something um so there's that kind of of opportunity that allows him to learn so much and to get a a really solid musical training uh by the time he is in his mid-teens
0: I believe you're quite right that some of that still goes on in private schools uh, today. Uh, these sorts of special events for for important guests and um, members of the community, and and it's it's a fantastic way also, um, as you were you were saying, for the young musicians t- to learn the craft, to learn all about what it what it means to be on stage, to be in front of an audience, and and it can be extremely daunting. Um, I remember as a younger um, singer in f- being there in with nothing uh, in. your your hands in front of a large group of people, having to sing this music, and uh, and Bach, of course, uh, must have excelled because um, the, I mean the rest is history, as they say.
1: Yeah, that's right, and uh, it's still that kind of you know of training is is excellent um, preparation for professional musicians. And the, I guess the, the nearest equivalent we have to it today is the cathedral schools. So, for example, you know, St, uh, St. Andrew's Cathedral, St Mary's Cathedral in Sydney have schools attached to them. And the kids in those uh, who are in the choirs of those schools sing in church week in and week out. And that means that they are learning a whole lot of new repertoire all the time. They have to be able to get up every Sunday and sometimes on other occasions as well when there's a special you know, a feast day or whatever, um, to uh, be ready to perform at the drop of a hat pretty much and to learn a whole lot of new music in a short time. And so this is part of the training of, of not just Bach but all of the kids who went through that system. It made them extremely um, flexible and uh, quick learners Uh, and able to adapt to different styles of music and so forth and so he picks that up um, along with you know all the other kids who were doing it as well but clearly he was a standout uh, talent in doing that Uh, so along the way he's learning um, the keyboard in particular for which he's now famous as an organist and harpsichordist and so on but also the violin he was an excellent violinist and that probably goes to explain some of the excellent quality of the string writing that we have in this program the the violin pieces but also the the cello suites and so forth, because he really understood how the instruments worked. Do we know
0: if Johann Sebastian was a given an instrument or, or had uh, any sort of tuition with his father, Ambrosius, who was a violinist him, himself, um, before Ambrosius' uh, passing?
1: It's one of the, the sad things about uh, any kind of study of Bach, really, is that we have very little direct documentation. There are no letters or diaries or any of those things that would give us a very kind of personal insight into his life or his ideas. Um, We have to kind of glean a lot of this stuff by putting together just bits of information and building up a a broad picture. So in relation to his childhood, particularly his early childhood, we have pretty much nothing in terms of uh, specific information about things like his training and and so on. So all we have is uh, the fact that he was born into a musical family. He had relatives all around who were professional musicians, the organist of the church uh, in Eisenach where he um, was a small child, was, co- I think, a cousin of his father's, who was also a fine composer. So amongst all of these people, um, there's no way you could grow up in a family like that without being well-trained as a musician, and you would start young. Um, so some of the things that we that we know that give us a kind of insight are in the famous obituary of of Johann, uh, of Sebastian Bach, that was written by his son, Carl um, Philipp Emanuel Bach, and, and by Forkel, his first biographer... Um, one of the things that they recount is that uh, the Bachs, all of these Bachs who were um, a very sort of broad uh, extended family of um, full of professional musicians, they would get together and have kind of family get-togethers, once or twice a year maybe, where they would uh, just have a kind of weekend of um, of hanging out together, really. And, of course, it was full of music. And so they would uh, they would start by singing a hymn, a, a chorale together, because they're immersed, of course, in church music and a, um, a very religious society. And then they would just do the sorts of things that only professional musicians could do for fun, like improvising uh, quadlibets where they would take uh, multiple popular songs of the day or folk songs and and dance pieces and things and just figure out ways of by improvisation putting them together so you could you could sing these multiple things kind of in counterpoint with each other and somehow make the harmony work you know when it it shouldn't and all that kind of thing and just have a great time they were just apparently you know really just enjoyed this kind of um messing around with the the consummate skill that they all had Um, but but doing it for fun as well as for for business. So, uh, in that environment, you can imagine young Sebastian just kind of uh, lit up by all of this um, kind of musical uh, environment in which he's living and looking for perhaps. And again, you know, this is always speculation. We don't know. But uh, doing history is always an act of imagination. You know, that's all we can do is to try and imagine what it might have been like, what might have happened to. to how the, the facts that we know can kind of fit together into a story. And uh, so it's not hard to imagine young, young Sebastian just looking for that kind of sense of, of the thrill of, um, of figuring out musical puzzles and, uh, and of learning new skills and so forth all through his childhood and really throughout his life. And I think we do see that reflected in the kind of music that he composed and performed and, and what he clearly enjoyed doing. It
0: sort of sounds like an ideal version of uh, a Baroque um, reality TV show where you have these incredible <laughs> musicians all together doing this uh, this music. Um, do we know then in terms of his organ lessons and, and uh, essentially the technical side of things that he would have had to learn as an organ technician and builder and, and what he uh, clearly had as professional skills by the time he was uh, coming of age and, and was working as a professional musician? Do we know where... Um, where those skills would have been built up and and how how he learnt that trade.
1: Um, I don't think we know too much about the kind of technical side of organ building except that uh, he um, spent quite a bit of time with uh, family members and other musicians who were experts in organ music and uh, we know that from quite early on, probably in his late teens, he was being called in as a kind of consultant to check out new or, or refurbished instruments and make sure that they were all working. Uh, So he wasn't an organ builder himself as such, but he was clearly very uh, technically competent in the construction of organs. And one thing to bear in mind is that in this period, the organ was just about the, the most complex piece of machinery in existence, right? There was nothing... Uh, that I know of that is more complicated as a piece of physical machinery at that time than a large organ and so to understand how it all works how all the bits fit together and to be able to crawl around amongst the mechanism which you had to be able to do um, to uh, to get at all of the bits and and make sure that they were working properly how do you replace one of those little tiny valves or you know whatever it is that needs fixing Uh, how do you identify if a particular note is not Sounding quite right. Um, where in the whole machinery something has gone wrong, and what do you need to do to fix it? That kind of skill, I think, stood him in very good stead. Uh, partly getting him him work, particularly early in his career as a consultant, but also just in uh, it's that that thing of being kind of immersed in not only the style of the music and so forth, but the physical technology of, of how you play it, kind of like uh, we were talking about Jonas and, and being completely at home or Jonsuke Sako or, or, or our, our own players being completely at home with the technology of the baroque violin, for example. Well, Bach grows up thoroughly immersed in the technology of the organ, mm. and uh, I think we hear that also in, in the kinds of pieces he composed that uh, drew on all the different kinds of, of things that organs could do.
0: And at what point then, um, in terms of the violin and uh, and cello repertoire, actually as well, that remains essential learning for Western instrumentalists even today? At what point does does this music appear in um, Bach's output? Um, maybe maybe we can skip ahead to 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 when that yeah. might be.
1: Well. Um... One of the things that uh, becomes more and more obvious the more closely you look at Bach's output is that, and, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it, that the kinds of pieces he composed, uh, which are all quite variable, like um, the all the church cantatas, uh, then so that they're kind of different categories, right? We have things like the church cantatas, but on the other hand, we have the um, the cello suites and the violins, um, partitas, and... Um, and uh, lots of organ music and so on. And they were not all written uh, kind of evenly spread across his career. They come from particular points in his career when it was his job to do that particular kind of music. And so most of the uh, instrumental music and particularly those pieces we've been talking about and the violin concertos and so forth, all come from a period uh, in the sort of early part of his career when he was actually not a church musician but a court musician. So his very first jobs were as a a church organist just when he was 18, 20 and so on. But soon after that, he spent most of his 20s and into his uh, 30s working as a court musician, um, particularly at Weimar and at Curtin, uh, both of which were small principalities, but they had rulers who were very uh, um, sophisticated, uh, aristocratic men who loved music and were willing to spend their... Scarce resources on getting the best musicians. And so Bach really uh, thrived in that kind of environment. And so it's for those two chords where we think most of the um, instrumental music was composed. And so uh, he seems to have spent time in Curtin in 1720 putting together the fair copies of the cello suites and the violin uh, sonatas and partitas, which may have been written over a period leading up to that. We don't actually know for sure when they were composed, and likewise the Brandenburg Concertos come from the same period. Uh, Very few of these pieces have really specific dates on them, but we can kind of piece together where they fit. So one of the interesting questions about that is for something like the cello suites, for example, they, they're not entirely unique, but they're very uncommon in the repertoire to have pieces like this, first of all, for the cello rather than for the bass viol, which had continued to be in use, for particularly for this kind of solo music up to this time. So uh, writing something for a cello solo was still pretty unusual, but to write it for a solo without any accompaniment, without any continuo part, uh, is very unusual. A couple of people had done that before, but they were fairly straightforward, unsophisticated kinds of pieces compared to what Bach produces. And so he writes these six big suites of you know a series of of large movements, technically challenging music. Where does it come from? Who was it for? Why was it composed? Um, we don't actually know for sure. So we again, we have to kind of speculate based on the context. And so the kinds of um, explanations that probably make some sense would be because he was working with really excellent professional colleagues at uh, both of these courts. just they had relatively small ensembles of musicians, up to about 10 people, but they were really good players. And so he could probably experiment with writing some challenging music for those people to play. Why was it uh, composed? Where would they have performed it? Again, we can't be sure. Um, but probably for the private entertainment of the aristocratic families for which he was working, so the Duke of Weimar and so forth. Um, if he had sophisticated tastes, then maybe there was an opening to say, OK, tonight for our, uh, our soiree, we're going to be playing cards and chatting and so forth, but we'll get in Mr So-and-so, the, the cellist of the ensemble, to play this rather groundbreaking new piece that, that um, our concertmaster, Mr Bach, has composed and it is in fact wonderfully interesting and uh, enjoyable music to listen to and I think one of the things that's that's striking about these solo pieces for both the cello pieces and the, the violin pieces is that you can listen to them at a couple of levels uh, they are just very pleasant uh, enjoyable music to have on and so uh, it's sometimes you even hear, hear them in um, in lifts and you know shops and and that kind of thing, it can be just nice to have on in the background in fact. Um, my mobile phone came with uh, the first movement of the G, uh, G Major cello suite as one of the options for your um, you know, wake-up call when, the, uh, when you set the alarm. And I used it for, for years as my uh, alarm clock sound. Um, and, but that's not really listening to JS Bach in the way that uh, you know, we'd probably aspire to do. So when you listen to it more closely, you start to realise how much is going on in the layering of this music and the clever thing of course with these pieces is that even though it's possible to play more than one note at a time on the cello or the violin by playing two strings at once for example and occasionally he does that essentially these are pieces just for a single line and so you can play them and people do on say the tenor saxophone or the the um, bassoon or whatever and essentially you still get the same piece um so how does it work how does it get How does it um, make something that sounds more like uh, that doesn't just sound like somebody kind of noodling along, you know, uh, playing one note at a time? And the answer is that he creates a kind of uh, fake harmony. He 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 tricks the ear into hearing more than one part at a time, and on string instruments, that's. They're really well adapted to do that because by leaping across different strings, you can go from high to low uh, and medium uh, very quickly. And so uh, he can do that in such a way that it tricks the ear into hearing up to two, three, even four parts. Uh, at the same time, even though only one note is being played at a time.
0: Perhaps you could explain how that works more specifically uh, for those who don't really understand or know how stringed instrument works. With the cello, for example, why is it that that, that, that's possible? There are four strings on the cello, correct? And, And so how are they distributed?
1: Yeah, there are there are four. Um, occasionally, there were five, and we think that um, one of the cello suites was in fact written for a five string instrument, because it works beautifully if you have the extra string, and it's really hard if you don't. So, uh, but uh, yeah, essentially four strings on on all of our standard string family instruments: the cello, uh, the viola, and the violin, and the double bass. Um, and so uh, when you're drawing the bow across the string of course the the challenge is mostly when you're learning say the violin as a as a little kid is to get the angle of the bow right so that you're only touching one string at a time otherwise you just have constant kind of cacophony of different sounds clashing with each other Um, but you uh, once you've mastered that then you go up the scale by crossing from one string to the next so you start say on the the, the G string, the bottom string on the violin, you go up the the first few steps of the scale and then you cross over onto the D string to go up higher. And then you cross onto the A string and then onto the E string. And so that way you can go all the way up the scale. Um, And when you wanna play a more complex melody, then you're jumping back and forth essentially across the different strings. So if uh, if a composer writes in the notes in such a way that you're constantly jumping back and forth, then it almost sounds like there's a different tune being played on each of those strings. Uh, And so we can actually imagine our, our, our ear reconstructs a sort of um, imaginary harmony of all of those different notes, uh, each playing their own melody at the same time, so that we get what feels like uh, almost a whole orchestra playing, or a uh, or a, a piano or something playing chords, when in fact it's just one note being played at a time. the The way to make sense of it really is just to play us uh, to play an example and listen to to how it works.
0: Mm. Well, I've got a wonderful example for us, and she certainly doesn't have any problems with um, muddling up her strings on her cello. Lucia Sfartz, uh here, we're going to hear her performing the Prelude, the most well-known movement out of all of the suites for solo cello, the Prelude from Suite Number 1 in G Major, BWV 1007, from her album called Six Suites for Violoncello Solo, uh, and that was released by Challenge Classics in 2019.
1: Now, just uh, before you put it on, Hugh, I'll just suggest uh, for listeners listening to this, um, listen out for uh, the way that it starts on a low note, and that lays down the bass line. So that's like the the sort of the, the double bass or the bass guitar in your, your band. And then it leaps up through an arpeggio. It just goes straight up towards the top notes. And so each of those notes uh, that you hear in that opening uh, line, just the first sort of four notes, is... Um, each of those sounds like it then continues with its own melody and so listen out for the way that it creates that illusion of harmony. Mm -hmm.
0: I'll leave that going on in the background, Alan, and it really does pain me to bring it down because it's the sort of music I feel like I could listen to over and over, and I think many people feel the same way about this particular prelude. In terms of what we're hearing then, I can, I can get that sense uh, that you've described of the, the lower part, the bass part being there as a, a sort of edifying harmonic uh, staple and then you have the melody above it and uh, it's very clearly multiple voices working at the at the same time uh, perhaps you could uh, tell us about the harmonic shifts then and and why how Bach manages to um keep our ears yearning for the next phrase and keep us keep our attention um peaked
1: yeah it's uh, one of the things about um you know how harmony works in t- in tonal music so what we what we sometimes call the music of the common practice period. That is essentially from the the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries when the system of harmony that we think of today as kind of standard classical harmony was developed and consolidated. So part of what makes the harmony useful is not just that it provides an accompaniment and more sort of texture to the sound rather than just having one melody at a time it's also uh, that it gives us the feeling of moving forward uh, that the harmony is directional it's going it starts from somewhere which we hear as being the the home key the kind of home ground and then it will shift away in another direction and uh, We might feel like we kind of settle in a little bit in another key area for a while, but we know that in the end we want to get back to that sense of arrival that brings us back to where we started out from. So in the very broadest sense, that's kind of how... Harmony works in, in tonal music. And I guess for you as a composer, Hugh, um, this kind of thing is is what you're thinking about all the time. How do we make the music interesting, but also give it a sense that it's leading us on a bit of a journey, telling us a story in some way? Is that a fair way of putting it? I
0: think I think it is. You're, you're quite right. And perhaps nowadays, uh, focus has been less uh, on specific harmonic modulations, as it were, but rather potentially textural or color sort of modulations and the, a, a particular combination of unusual sounds to pique uh, people's interest and uh, but the the concept remains the same that there there needs to be an underlying sense of movement or or uh, a process that um, that's going to draw your listener from one uh, just like the performer them, themselves you'll always receive a better performance from a, a player who is um, who's interested and in actually enjoying the line that they're playing playing than not and so so whether you do that through the means of uh, some sort of harmonic progression like Bach is doing here um, or in more contemporary terms with some other technique is, is up to the composer but it's, it's essentially the same concept and um, and I believe that um, it's, it's hard to surpass what um, Johann Sebastian Bach has already achieved so sometimes <laughs> it might be right, futile <laughs> <laughs> to even think that you can or, or tried. Uh, trying to do so.
1: One of the other things that stood out to me in that particular recording is that, um, you know, we talked a little bit before about the way Jonas was playing the violin concerto and how those... Those notes at all on the page appear to be exactly the same, Uh, a a smart and sensitive and musical player will actually make them all a little bit different. It's not like you can just play the notes straight off the page and the piece will sound the way it's supposed to sound. You actually, it's only a kind of a broad blueprint, really, for what the sound of the music is supposed to be. And so in that recording of the cello suites, um, you may have noticed, uh, listening to it, that uh although all of those notes are written out at basically the same length it goes da 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 just continues like that all the way through and if you play it like that it gets kind of dull but she didn't so she differentiated the different voices that are built into that texture by holding the bass notes a little bit longer. So instead of just diva, di diva, di, it's and mm. emphasis on different notes at different points and little just micro delays or moving forward of individual notes while the pulse goes on slowly. And steadily and predictably in the background, all of that creates that kind of sense of of a really nuanced and sophisticated and interesting performance that keeps us keeps our ears glued to it. You know, mm-hmm. you can never completely uh, just sit back and uh, and let it wash over you. I mean, you can, but. You know, if you listen in more closely, there's always something going on.
0: Mm. And that, that notion of pulse as well as a driving factor is a very important one and one that Bach uh, exploits, um, you know, obviously expertly. It's, um, it's, it's almost like he has an innate sense of rhythm across all of the voices and how, how regularly changes are required so as to keep the ear um, attentive and pleased um, is, is masterful and, um, keeps, yeah. keeps a, and keeps us all there.
1: One of the things we do know about Bach's influences is that uh, it was during this period when he was uh, at Weimar and then at at Curtin that he first was exposed to the music of Vivaldi. And this had a really profound effect on him. In fact, so much so that uh, in the the obituary, um, Emanuel Bach wrote that it was uh, the music of Vivaldi that taught my father to think musically. Whoa. Encountering Vivaldi's music taught Bach how to think musically, wow. That's a big statement, right? And interesting that it was Bach's son who said that too, not to some other kind of commentator. So uh, what happened was that uh, he, um, his patron had gone off and doing the grand tour and came back and brought with him a whole lot of printed music bought from Amsterdam, which is where a big centre of music publishing, and amongst it was the Vivaldi L'Estroie Monaco concertos. Um, and so Bach, again... Uh, copies them out. He makes arrangements of them for the keyboard, uh, which was probably useful for the, the court, but also allows him to get his head around it, to get inside how this music works. And it's from that period on that in his... Uh, instrumental works particularly like the violin concertos we hear the same sorts of structures the same sorts of rhythmic drive and the harmonic drive that is such a feature of Fivaldi's music that sense that it sort of draws you along irresistibly um, on this kind of exciting journey that comes into Bach's music more and more, and in fact we see it not only in the instrumental music, but even in the vocal music. So there, are and in the organ music, you know, there are some of the organ preludes and fugues which are affect. So there's a famous A minor um, prelude and fugue in which the fugue, even though it's a, it's a, a perfectly. Um, structured and works perfectly as a piece of counterpoint it's actually organized like a violin concerto i mean it's astonishing how he does that Mm. and in in some of the uh, church cantatas they start with a big choral movement accompanied by orchestra and so forth and this is uh, so, for example, Wachet Aufwurftungs die Stimme, the uh, Advent Cantata, and um, several others of, of that kind, uh, where it's just a setting of a, a hymn tune in the first movement. You think, well, what can you do with that? You just write some harmony to accompany the hymn tune, right? No. Bach turns it into a, a kind of concerto movement, which has got all of the sort of harmonic structures and the, the rhythmic drive and the manipulation of, of melodies and so forth that you get in a Vivaldi violin concert. And so this is part of what makes Bach so interesting and so so clever in his composing that he puts together all of these different influences in ways that, that make the music layered so there's always something different that you can hear going on in it.
0: It's almost like he, although he never travelled there, um, was able to imbue all of the Vivaldian uh, music from the Ospedale della Pietà and the concertos and various other pieces that would have been played there in his own practice and it, it's like magic as you say, you know, how he manages all or, or the, the obviously the 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 result uh, it, it just clearly speaks for itself, and um, what would have been easy um, in terms of just fulfilling a job to write a, a, some sort of easy harmony to follow a a, a hymn tune um, is is never the sort of a solution that Herr Bach would uh, would have come up with. It's not, you know, no, 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 no. Let's let's see what we can really make of this, and yeah. um, whether it be counterpoint like yeah.
1: He looks at every composing challenge and goes, uh, yeah how could we make this more complicated? Yes,
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> how
1: can I add more layers to this? How can I introduce um, some more, you know, technique into, into what I'm doing? But it's always technique in the service of a, a musical outcome. And so uh, what do you say is a good point about the, you know, that sense that there's this Italian influence, and there certainly is, coming not only from Vivaldi but from other italian music that he encountered um including italian opera um, there's a big influence of that on the church cantatas the style of, of arias and so forth that he writes for those um, but also there's a substantial influence of french music which we're going to hear in the uh, orchestral suite that's on the this program um and that came probably uh partly from from just scores that he was able to get hold of and to play himself and so on, Um, but also because when he was at school in Nunenburg, as we were saying, as a teenager, um, one of the the useful things about that was that uh, it was close to, associated with the court of the Duke of Tzele, who was a German nobleman but was very keen on all things French and he maintained a French orchestra. And so with actual French musicians playing French music. And when they uh, were in town in Lunebourg, they quite likely borrowed some of the musicians from the school. So it may be that Bach even got to play with some of those uh, professional French musicians as a young man and certainly to hear them uh, playing real French music in the real French style. And so all of that kind of goes into the mix. And he's able to draw on all of these different sources. And we know that German musicians were keen on doing this, particularly through the, the early and middle part of the 18th century. Telemann talked about it a lot, about and and Kvants and, and other writers, um, about how the Germans saw themselves as having their own kind of native tradition, but also of taking the best of all of the other uh, major European styles, particularly the French and Italian, and... Uh, and kind of getting the best of all possible worlds by, by drawing on the best aspects of all of those styles and melding them into something uh, which they could call the, the mixed style. Mixed style,
0: yes. And the mixed style, obviously, it, it has been a feature of several Brandenburg concerts and was earlier this year the um, the feature of the regional tour, Baroque Fusions, which um, mm. featured several uh, works by Telemann, uh, including a Polish dance, a, fo- a sort of folk tune that, um, that he'd picked up while he was in there for a in Poland for a brief uh, uh, period. But we're not here to talk about Telemann uh, <laughs> as interesting as he is. As, let's save that as, for as another, time. We'll that for another, another time. time. In fact, I, I want us to, um, to listen one more time to the Vivaldian uh, nature of the violin concerto in E major. So let's return to that wonderful recording on Brandenburg I um, by Jonas and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, but this time the Adagio, the middle movement and um, see what we can't find in it um, as italian influences go Down just a bit, Alan, so we can talk um, about this music. This, this—it's very operatic sounding, isn't it?
1: Well. In a way, it is. Though to me, this particular movement is actually one of the less lyrical ones of that style. Um, it's one of the things that really stands out with a lot of Vivaldi's slow movements. So I think a thing that that Bach probably did pick up um, that we talk mostly about what he does with the fast movements and how that's based on Vivaldi's famous ritornello form structure. But in the slow movements, certainly Vivaldi often does that kind of operatic uh, lyrical melody thing. Here, I think we're getting a little bit of a mixture. It's um, uh, it's sort of mysterious and uh, with that, that kind of um, uh, slow moving, heavy kind of bass line that sets the whole thing up. Uh, and it also uses a figure, um, a musical figure, which was called Suspirazio, the uh, a, a sigh, <laughs> which uh, is where the first beat of the bar is missing. It goes da da dum, bum, ba da 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 dum, bum. Da 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 da. We're waiting for that for the first beat that doesn't come. So it's like you sort of catch your breath, and that sets up. I think the uh, the mood of the piece. So uh, what he's doing is it's not an entirely vocal melody in the way that Vivaldi sometimes does in the slow movements. It still feels like a really violinistic piece because uh, the sorts of embellishments in the melody that he he puts in kind of leap around in a way that is not comfortable for voices to do at least in, in this kind of slow and lyrical music. So I think he's giving us sort of the best of both worlds in a way, the, the lyricism of the vocal style, but also the, um, the flexibility and uh, the, the uh, ornamentation that you can get comfortably on the violin. Mm.
0: But I, 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 I think both of us do agree on the, um, the Italianate nature of this particular movement as well. The, even that, that technique, the sospirato, I mean, it, it's, 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 <laughs> it's the sort of thing you would expect out of uh, an Italian piece of music and, and yet here we find it in, in, in Bach exploiting it beautifully.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and all of those sorts of um, musical figures were actually codified by German uh, writers primarily but the practice that they represent was um, as much Italian as it, as it was German certainly probably more so in many respects and so I think he's, he's, yeah, he's drawing on all of that kind of expressive style that we get um, particularly from Italian music.
0: Now, we've talked about Bach and uh, making illicit copies of, um, of his older brother's music, and indeed copies uh, in general of, of music um, as, as part of his, um, his work throughout his career. How is it that we know some of Johann Sebastian Bach's music is his music when it doesn't necessarily survive in a copy in his own hand. Um, I'd like to talk to you, Alan, about manuscripts for a bit and, and delve into this part of the 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 Johann of Johann Sebastian Bach's musical world.
1: Yeah, it's a really important question because one of the things that we keep coming back to is the fact that during this period, a really small proportion of old music was actually printed. Uh, The vast majority of music circulated in manuscript copies that is handwritten copies so if you wanted a copy of something you couldn't just go to the shop and buy one you had to either employ somebody else to make you a handwritten copy or you had to copy it out yourself and so that of course has some of the consequences that we've talked about in terms of the the process of of writing as a, a way of learning um but uh it also um introduces some complexities into how we understand what was going on and how we identify particular pieces of music with a particular composer. Um, Sometimes, and relatively commonly, the composer's name would be written on the, the top of the piece. It would say, you know, this concerto by... J.S. Park, um, but uh, not always, and sometimes we have to kind of surmise who the composer was from the, the context. But even when the composer's name is on it, uh, we can't always rely on that as being an accurate record. Uh, in fact, um, I've just uh, spent the last few days uh, marking a doctoral thesis from the University of W.A. in which a student did a really interesting study of a uh, an oratorio by Gallupi, who was a slightly younger contemporary of, of people like Bach like and Handel and so on. Um, and uh, one of the copies we have of that piece is was made in the copying workshop of uh, a priest in Venice called um, Baldan was his, his surname. And uh, so that we had many, many copies of pieces by Baldan, copied by Baldan, uh, surviving. Um, but he was notorious for the fact that when he got a, he would often get an order in from somebody, you know, I'd like some of the, the latest Venetian music, you know, send me something by these famous composers who are around at the moment, you know, send me something by Vivaldi. And uh, if you didn't have any Vivaldi, or uh, then he would, uh, you know, he'd send me some, send you something by somebody else and just put Vivaldi's name on the top and so how do we work out which pieces are actually by Vivaldi or in this case Bach um, versus somebody else Uh, uh, and that arises of course particularly as you say where we don't have a copy in the composer's own handwriting. So that's always the best place to start, of course, if we have a copy, which we call an autograph, Uh, not because it has his autograph on it, you know, it's not like it has his signature, but autograph in the literal sense of uh, my uh, writing, yes, the uh, auto self writing. Yes. Uh, in other words, so written in his own handwriting. For um, so quite a few of the Bach pieces, we do have autograph copies, but for the Trello suites, for example, we don't. We have four manuscript copies made in the 18th century, two of them. Uh, during Bath's lifetime and two from later in the century. And so between those four, none of them in his own handwriting, we have to work out which uh, are the ones that best represent what he actually composed in the first instance or possibly went back and and edited or changed uh, in his own work,
0: and having previously spoken with Anthea Cotti um, on um, on the program uh, about exactly that problem, as to as a cellist, what slurring to uh, adhere to or not, or mm. you know the sorts of ornamentation that might be appropriate, and and um, and the way that certain lines could be um, could be played, uh, that that potential there for um, uh, essentially, in, there are inconsistencies between these manuscript copies, and then having to, as a performer, make the decision as to how they prefer or that how they perceive this this music. It's a very it's a fascinating
1: topic. It is, and uh, um, the the issue of the slurring in the cello suites is particularly famous, and intractable problem. And I must, I should acknowledge here that just about everything I know about this comes from the work of, um, of my uh, friend and colleague, Zoltan Jabo, whose um, PhD I had the great pleasure of work, uh, supervising when when he was working on this. He's a very fine cellist himself, and formerly the um, the principal cello of the Opera and Ballet Orchestra, um, and then went on to do a PhD on the Bach cello suites and looked at exactly this problem of uh, how do we deal with these manuscripts and figure out what on earth Bach actually originally wrote. Um, because all of the four manuscripts disagree with each other at various points. And uh, so one of the puzzles with in all of these situations where we have multiple copies of something is to figure out how they related to each other. Was one of them copied from one of the other ones? Um, or were they both, if you have two Um, similar ones, were they, was one copied from the other or were they both copied from a different example or were they each copied from yet another lost example which might go back to the original one? was there one original one or were they possibly more than one version that uh, that Bach may have written himself and which were copied at different times? And uh, and that's exactly the sort of thing that we have arising with the Trello Suites, because the two contemporary copies, that is contemporary to Bach that we have, are in the hand of his second wife, Anna Magdalena, is one of them, and that's usually taken to be the the kind of most authoritative one because it it looks like it's the closest to him. It was made by his wife and presumably under his supervision. The other one was by uh, another local musician, Johann Peter Kellner, who was an organist and composer and um, I think at one stage a student of Bach's, uh, who seems to have borrowed quite a few of Bach's scores from time to time and made copies of them himself. Uh, in a similar t- way to to what we were talking about before, of composers circulating music amongst themselves. Um, and But his version is distinctly different in some respects from Anna Magdalena's one, but not only for the cello suites, but for the uh, violin partitas and, um, and sonatas, which he, he copied. Uh, and where they disagree with each other, how do we work out, is one of them correct and the other not, or are they just two, bo- both possible versions? I mean, In many cases, there are just simple mistakes. You know, you're playing through it and go, oh, that can't be right. That that note is obviously just in the wrong place. Um, And so having another copy that you can compare it to usually solves that problem because you can say, oh, okay, this other person has got the correct version clearly because that works and this one doesn't. Um, But there are also instances where uh, the one version will be more complicated than the other. It will have more double stopping, for example, where you have to play on two or even three strings at once uh, or a more um, elaborately ornamented cadence or something. And so is that because that's what Bach intended and somebody else made a copy and they took out the hard bits or was it that he wrote the simpler version and somebody else uh, wrote in what they would like to do as the the more uh, advanced version um, because they because they're a very good player or, you know, all of these sorts of problems arise.
0: And I think um, you get down to a point where you're talking about um, mistakes as a a copying mistake versus mistakes as a a simple lack of knowledge. Um, Someone who's a cellist who would obviously recognise a particular mistake for being an impossible note on the cello or whatever it might be, um, would immediately recognise that mistake and then be able to correct it, um, whether or not they were copying from a a particular manuscript or, or, or not um because of the knowledge that they already have the performing knowledge and the practical knowledge of the instrument um and so yeah i can imagine that uh, debates would go long into the night uh, with regard to uh with regard to this sort of thing
1: they do and uh and one of the the things that kind of complicates it for us today is that because Bach is such an iconic figure, uh, we get quite hung up on the idea that uh, every individual note that he wrote, um, and particularly things that are in his own handwriting, but even these things that are in copies, which have in themselves become kind of iconic documents, uh, we like to think that every individual note is kind of wholly writ. You know, it's, it's sacred and can't be, uh, can't be altered in any way, um, kind of like the way they treated Goryan chant in the middle ages you know it had come directly down from uh from the holy spirit through through pope gregory and therefore every individual note of the chant must be preserved perfectly as it is um and uh, so we we sometimes treat the music of uh, the iconic figures like like bach and mozart and beethoven and so forth as if they are um unalterable uh iconic documents in themselves. Um, and that means that uh, when we do come across a mistake that needs to be fixed, either that, that the answer tends to be one of two things. Either the editor who's doing the addition of the music to silently fixes the mistake and kind of pretends it wasn't there uh, or uh, they or they leave it in and people dutifully learn and play the wrong note um, which you sometimes hear in some you know even famous recordings of particular pieces that um, and, and sometimes the, the performer has made a conscious decision to say I know this sounds weird and it doesn't seem like it's quite right but Bach wrote it and therefore I'm going to play what he wrote you know. Um, so uh, those kinds of decisions are ones that ultimately, of course, are well, they're up to editors who make modern editions for the performers to play from, who have to make these hard decisions all the time, um, but uh, if they do that in a way that's transparent, where they write in the introduction to a score, for example, you often see uh, some critical notes where they've described the, the, the problems that they've encountered and how they fixed them or what mistakes they encountered and and how and why they've they've um, remedied those um, and so musicians who are using those scores and who are kind of diligent and read all the fine print can make their own decisions about uh, which version they're going to do and sometimes there are multiple um, possible uh, answers to, to these things you know sometimes uh, there are two versions either of which is plausible and could be right and maybe they're both right but um, then you just have to choose one or the
0: other. Mm. Now, another issue that, that all of this raises is, is, is exactly the issue that we started talking about in terms of provenance. And, um, and there's been some research um, in, uh, almost 10 years ago now by a certain Australian scholar, Martin Jarvis, who, uh, who believes that Anna Magdalena Bach is, in fact, responsible and the, the composer of The Cello Suites. And, uh, and lays out all of his arguments and, and, and these sorts of uh, things are uh, even available in a video if you if you want to go and, and, and um, see uh, see what Martin you know obviously has, has put together as an argument to support these these ideas Um how does that work in, in terms of the academic side of, of the musical understanding of, of Bach? Is this something that is also, because of Bach's name, commonplace, that you, you have opportunistic sort of publishing when it comes to, to the cello suites and, and other things?
1: Uh, I think um, it's an example of why this kind of work is, is complex and difficult, but also why it's important to, to try and figure out what was going on. Because, you know, if the answer is that Anna Magdalena, Bach's wife, did in fact compose the cello suites, then that's a big deal, right? It changes our view of, uh, of Bach as a composer, and it radically changes our view of Anna Magdalena as also a composer. Uh, she was certainly a fine musician. She was a professional singer when she married Sebastian Bach. Uh, so we know that she was very complex. And clearly, the fact that she did copy a lot of his music out for him uh, shows that she was a skilled musician and knew what she was doing. Um, so, uh, this the idea that she actually composed rather than merely copied the the cello suites. Yes, with this was quite a. a um, a big issue a a sort of it made quite a splash about 10 years ago when um when um martin jarvis published the the book in which he made the claim um it's not a claim which is accepted by most bach scholars today and uh it's it's hard to kind of sum up the whole thing in a few words but essentially what it turns on is the fact that first of all we can establish that it is anna magdalena's handwriting in the copy not uh johann sebastian's um handwriting and for a long time that was a point of contention that early on uh, many scholars had thought that it was in fact in J.S. Bach's handwriting but um, but no it's not. Uh, her handwriting is similar to his but it's clearly not his his writing. So okay it's in her handwriting and um, perhaps the, the key point is that on the cover page it says uh, in French written by Mrs. Bach composed by Mr. Bach. <laughs> so it turns really on the question of what does written by and composed by mean? And um, with, without uh, putting uh, words in, in Martin Jarvis's mouth, I think essentially um, the, the question was, does that mean that she actually composed the piece and he had somehow contributed to assembling it in some way, that, that, that composing meant something like that? Or does it mean what it appears literally to mean on the face of it, which is he composed it, she wrote it physically on the paper she copied it out and in the the terminology of the period i think most scholars agree that it it means just what it, it appears to mean which is he composed it and she copied it um, and uh if she if she had composed it of course it's an attractive idea to us now because uh it would be really interesting to know that a female musician you know had written such an iconic piece which is so well known now and, and so important in the repertoire and so forth and uh, because we have, from this period, relatively few female composers. And the reason for that is not, of course, because they were less talented or anything, but because there were very few opportunities for women to work as professional musicians other than opera singers. And so they didn't have the opportunity for the same kind of education and specifically the kind of musical education that was open to, uh, to boys. And so we have exceptions, but they're relatively rare. So if we had another exception and it was Bach's wife, wow, that would be fantastic. And so um, uh, I would love to believe it was true in a way, but I think the evidence uh, as I read it and as most scholars read it doesn't in the end support that.
0: And even as Shunsky Sato during the Barks in his addresses to the audience, um, we have other problems that arise with uh, with Wilhelm Friedemann who actually tried to pawn off some of his father's music as his own at certain points in his career. So it really the the accounts and the, the hand and, in which certain things were composed and the, the use of a title page or, or writing your name above a piece of work, it, it gets extremely complicated. And um, And of course we can't go back in a time machine and verify exactly what went on, um, but but we we do have certain tools at our disp- uh, disposal that you've you've already mentioned. Um, how does uh, in terms of uh, then the the academic understanding of, of these rather foreign and distant concepts to many? How does then the context uh, surrounding the composition of, of of that work in terms of when we know that the the work must have been produced fit into the equation? Is that an important element in understanding? Um, provenance?
1: Uh, yeah, it certainly can be. And um, conversely, uh, the more we can find out about things like who copied a score and that kind of thing, Uh, and even what kind of paper it's written on, will often tell us important things about when it was composed. Uh, So one of the uh, really interesting aspects of um, the the kind of nerdy parts of the the work that I do and and my colleagues do, it can be looking at the paper type uh, on which something is copied. So um, many listeners will know that uh, paper often has a watermark, and paper made in the 18th century almost always has a watermark because it was made by hand and part of the, the the technology, part of the process of making the paper was that it was um, made from uh, kind of pulp um, which was spread out on a wire screen, kind of like a, a fly wire sort of mesh um, and into that was woven a pattern which then imprinted itself into the body of the paper and it meant it was uh, a kind of branding exercise for the maker of the paper so they could differentiate first of all, their own product, so that it couldn't be passed off as someone else's product, and also that the different quality of products that they had would have different kind of marks in them. So those watermarks, we can trace them to, often to individual papermakers, and we can trace where that particular brand of paper or that, that batch uh, would have been available for sale. And so if we can place the composer in a place where he might have bought the muse- that that paper or had it supplied by somebody else, um, then that will uh, can often help us to identify uh, where and when a particular piece was composed. And this is uh, particularly famously the case for Mozart, who moved around a lot. And uh, there was a, a whole book. Um, I mean, this is a really nerdy kind of a book in a way, but there's a, a wonderful book, by Alan Tyson, on the paper types of Mozart's manuscript, Music and uh, because you know he spent time in France and in Italy and uh, he was in Salzburg and in Vienna and so on and there were different kinds of paper available in those different places and sometimes we can work out uh, where. For example, sometimes it was he had a spare bit of of paper left over from somewhere else and wrote something down on it, but then it goes into another piece and we can sort of see when maybe a a movement was composed earlier and then later added into a different piece or substituted for a different one and so on and so on. And so some of that um, also helps us in studies of of Bach with other composers.
0: It's fascinating to think that um, that modern technology and paper trails, literally paper trails, are sometimes what leads us to these um, un- uncovering this information about when certain music and what, from where certain music came. And, of course, uh, paper and, and what's written on the paper is only half the story when it comes to music because we have to have an orchestra and we have to have musicians playing it to be able to appreciate it. And in this program, we have one of the finest works Bach ever produced for an orchestra, the orchestral suite Number 3 in D major, BWV 1068. Now, uh, w- w- what do you have to say about this, this masterpiece, <laughs> Alan? I mean, I, <laughs> I don't think there are enough superlatives.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's one of um of several of course of these, these large orchestral suites that, that Bach wrote. Again, we don't know exactly for what occasions they were composed, but they appear to have been put together uh in Leipzig and towards the end of his life and probably for the sorts of public events where there was a a visit from a major dignitary coming to the town and so they put on a a large concert to celebrate the event Um, and this kind of piece, which was a very celebratory, very... um, kind of outgoing, possibly even outdoor style, uh, was uh, useful. One of the things that stands out about it is that it's in these kinds of pieces, these overture suites, where you really hear the French influence on Bach's music, because this is the kind of music that was associated with the French court, and in particular the court of Louis XIV, uh, who famously maintained, uh, he was a dancer and a, and a musician himself, and uh, he had the spectacular um, court at, around him at Versailles, which was infused with music and dance all the time. And so this very kind of monumental, um, majestic style of music that was developed for the French court, court on, was then spread around the rest of Europe, well, not so much in Italy, but certainly in Germany and, and England and so forth. They really took up this uh, grand style. And so it's exactly the, the kind of music you want when you're having a big public event and you really want to make a splash and announce something, well, the, the way to do that is with a french overture and it was the kind of music that was developed first of all as the overture to an opera or a ballet or um, other kind of large theatrical sort of work Uh, and probably the origin of it was because it was the music that played while the king actually entered the room Um, you wouldn't uh, uh, have the king sitting there waiting for the music to start Uh, Instead, he would start the music and the king would make his entrance into the theatre while this grand music was playing. That's what we think was probably going on. Um, And so it's kind of entrance music that announces something really important and spectacular. And the style that was developed originally by Jean-Baptiste Lully uh, in France... Uh, to do that was instantly recognisable all over the rest of Europe for the next 50 years as being a French overture. Uh, And it was the sort of go-to style of music um, which uh, announced something... Um, something spectacular and i must say over the last week or so my family and i have been re-watching the wonderful tv series of um jane austen's pride and prejudice uh, which was made i think in 1995 or so um with uh colin firth and and so on and uh, just beautifully done. And it really struck me that every time they have uh, a scene where you see one of those grand English houses uh, that appears, you know, when she goes and first casts, sets eyes on Pemberley, Mr Darcy's grand house in Derbyshire, the music that uh, Carl Davis composed for it, which is all very cleverly in the style of the period, uh, but he introduces a French overture uh, feel. And we get this palm but um but ah it's that French overture rhythm that immediately says grand. this is a grand house. this is where somebody important and rich lives. Uh, and it comes from the 17th century in France.
0: Incredible. And uh, so for listeners, I'm going to put on a recording by uh, the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra recorded by the label Harmonia Mundi um, on their album, which is a brilliant album, um, including all four orchestral suites simply titled Bach Orchestral Suites. It's almost like a joke in the the sense that (laughs) just like Bach, they're giving the title just as, as a very deliberate title, exactly what it is. It's an orchestral suite. So this is just Bach Orchestral Suites. Um, but uh, the the music, I think, speaks for itself, and um, this is the opening overture from the Suite Number Three in D Major. bring down the sound just a little bit and we'll continue enjoying the opening of the overture before the fugue comes in of course now alan this music is is really uh, it's exactly what you've described it's so grand and 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 uh, the um the instrumentation i think lends to that feeling tell us about the instruments used here
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And the thing that really stands out, of course, is the trumpets. Uh, Trumpets and drums is the uh, kind of signature sound of this kind of very grand music. Uh, Trumpets were associated particularly with the military. And so anything that had trumpets in it immediately evoked that sense of here is some kind of grand ceremony. Um, It's the traditionally kings were announced by their trumpeters that there would be a corps of trumpeters who who rode horseback in front of the king's carriage you know playing fanfares as he entered the town and uh, all that kind of association even uh, you know in the 17th and into the 18th centuries um, many aristocrats maintained their own corps of musicians who included not only the uh, the string players and so on who would play for indoor music but they would also have a core of as many trumpeters as they could afford basically uh, who would uh, play those kinds of fanfests and things and the best of them could also play uh, not, not just um, kind of uh, trumpet calls and things but melodic parts like we hear in this music uh, and some of them um, their job was to call everybody in for dinner you know every every night when it was time for you know you dressed for dinner and so forth and went up to to, to have your dinner with the royal family or whatever, there was a trumpeter who stood at the door and played um, the, the special, you know, dinnertime melody to tell you to come in. Um, so it, it has all of those associations with aristocracy, with with wealth and power, and also with the military. And in fact, uh, most of the trumpeters were employed not as chamber or church musicians, but as military musicians, and they were seconded into um, the, the uh the kind of other orchestral situations when there was a special occasion that required their services and so it's why we get trumpets only fairly occasionally in Bach's church music for example just as a featured soloist here and there um, and uh, and in this kind of music they would certainly have been calling in the the local uh, core of, of trumpeters. Um, trumpet playing was a very particular skill which was jealously guarded and handed down from father to son or within particular families. You had to be a member of the guild in many places in Germany to even be allowed to play the trumpet. It was not like you could just kind of go, oh, I think I'd like to learn the trumpet and, you know, can I pick up some gigs playing? Um, no, you had to be a member of the guild. You had to be trained by uh, a uh, an official accredited kind of licensed trumpeter. Um, and in some places, the, the rules were so strict that if uh, somebody was caught, Um, playing the trumpet, and particularly trying to to make money out of playing the trumpet, uh, when they weren't authorised to, the official trumpeter was legally allowed to go around and punch their front teeth out. And The reason for that is because you need the teeth to hold the the trumpet in place, right, so to have uh, the the lips in the right position to play. So um, you could be on the spot, Stopped from playing the trumpet ever again, um, so it has that ca- all of that sort of cachet that goes with the, the sound of the trumpet. You know, it carries all of this kind of cultural resonance with it, um, and that's what comes through in this sort of very grand music and gives it that spectacular sound.
0: Yes, because if there if there was something in terms of medical uh, uh, procedures that were really lacking at that time of <laughs> of history it was dentistry. I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One of the things that when you look in the, I mean, today our our Baroque trumpeters often stand in the sort of posture that that modern trumpeters normally do, just holding the instrument out pretty much straight in front of them and holding it with both hands. Um, But in all of the pictures we have of uh, trumpeters from the period, and there are some modern Baroque trumpeters who do this as well now, which is really lovely to see, they stand with their hand, uh, so they have uh, in. The right hand holding the trumpet, and often holding it up at a steep angle, sort of above themselves, almost like those those photos of Dizzy Gillespie, you know, the the jazz trumpeter uh, with his trumpet pointing up at a steep angle, um, and the other hand is on their hip, so that what you get is this sort of very uh, um, elegant posture. Uh, of these military men standing bolt upright with a hand on the one hip and of course that's with the, the the glorious 18th century coat open around them so the hand is on the hip underneath the coat and then the other hand is holding up the trumpet like pointing it up in the air like look at me this is the this is the pinnacle you know this is the most spectacular thing you can do as a musician uh, they were the most highly paid amongst many of the musicians so all of that uh, um gives it the sound but also the look of of this kind of spectacular um, special occasion music and the other thing that goes with it is that the timpani the drums go with the trumpets because they were part of the same military corps they played the fanfares and things and often we don't have a written out part for the the drums but that was because the drummers were trained in their own guild with the secret knowledge of all of the patterns the drummers had to play and so they mostly improvised or they just knew the uh, how it went um, and uh, so very often there were there were played when there was no written out part for it it's quite unusual in fact to have a written out part for the drums but whenever the trumpets were there nearly always you had the drums with them which adds to this uh, the kind of confrontingly exciting sound of mm. that music
0: and I've spoken with um, our principal uh, timpanist and percussionist uh, Brian Nixon about exactly that and mm. uh, whether or not there's some secret guild that still exists because I don't really understand how he <laughs> translates the music that he has in front of him. It's usually just a full score into the parts that he plays. Um, but, um, but it sadly won't be Brian um, performing uh, trumpet. We'll have a wonderful musician in, in his stead for this upcoming series, Chiron Mella. that um, I'm really looking forward to meeting for the first time now in terms of first times and, and finally getting to see Jonas on the stage live for the first time Alan what are you most looking forward to as we walk into the concert hall for Bach's universe
1: gee it's hard to pick isn't it there's you know so many things on this program that uh, and it's interesting you know so much of it is kind of familiar music in a way um that uh it's coming back to old friends in some respects uh, but then um let me pick a, a couple of things. <laughs> I, I really like to, love to hear the cello suites live, and we don't get to hear that very often at all. Um, a piece we haven't talked about is Concerto for three violins in D major, reconstructed from a, a later arrangement that Bach made for harpsichords, and uh, that's really exciting to, to hear that with the three violins. Um, but perhaps above all, I think it's that that orchestral suite, the, the thrill of seeing that. You know, and hearing that um, live in, uh, in Angel Place um, with the, the uh, trumpets and drums is something that's hard to go past.
0: Yes, I know uh, because I spoke to her just the other day that Leanne Sullivan and her colleagues Alexandra Bieri and Richard Fommerson are really looking forward to this, um, this program. It's such a special treat
1: that's right having yeah having specialist baroque trumpeters who can really go to town on this stuff uh is so exciting and and yeah i'm sure for them this is kind of the pinnacle of, of what they get to do on the instrument uh that plus a, a few of the you know you get to play the trumpet shall sound from messiah by by Handel and a few other things that have spectacular solos uh, the brack's second Brandenburg concerto almost unplayably difficult on the, on the trumpet but in these these big pieces that have the particularly the sort of choir of three trumpets together. The sound is so spectacular. It must be so satisfying, I imagine, for those those players to play it together as a sort of trumpet corps. You get a bit of a sense of what it was like for those military guys who spent their whole careers playing fanfares and things and really playing as an ensemble unit, you know, the, the really good ones. It must have been so uh, so exciting to do because they specialised in high, middle and low parts. And uh, so the harmony that you get when you put those together is just uh, something that was really special to, to those instruments that's not, not quite the same and any other um, instrumental grouping of the time
0: well thank you as always Alan for joining me and I, I can't wait to hear this uh, music live with you at the City Recital Hall but uh, of course the opening concerts are going to be in the Melbourne Recital Centre and um, and Sydney siders are just going to have to wait that little bit longer before they get to see you on us live <laughs> on, <laughs> on stage
1: uh, uh, well, I'm, yes, I'm not going to get down to Melbourne, I'm afraid So I'm going to have to uh, to hang out for for um, the, the second outing But hopefully by, by that time uh, It'll be so ingrained in all of the players Having given it a couple of, of outings first That we might get an even more spectacular performance oh, you, can,
0: you can <laughs> definitely count on that Thank you,
1: Alan <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Hugh Lovely to talk with you again
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast today Consider making a donation in support of the Brandenburg by visiting our website www.brandenburg.com.au Thank you for this very important role you play as part of the Brandenburg family. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra.